Good evening. It's official. The coronavirus lockdown in New York State is over. We speak with a progressive candidate for mayor of New York. And Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, can a cyber attack spark a general war? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. The United States, uh, pardon me, the United States death toll from COVID-19 topped 600,000 today. The number of lives lost, as recorded by Johns Hopkins University, is greater than the population of Baltimore or Milwaukee. It's about equal to the number of Americans who died of cancer in 2019. Worldwide, the COVID-19 death toll stands at about 3.8 million. But the sobering news comes as the vaccination drive has drastically brought down daily cases and fatalities and allowed the countries that have an opportunity to get vaccinated to emerge from the gloom. Today, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo made the joyous announcement, state-mandated COVID restrictions are coming to an end. Life is not about survival. Life is about thriving. Life is about seeing people. Life is about loving. Life is about celebrating. Life is about enjoying. Life is about interacting. And now we get back to living in life. The state mandates that have proven right and correct and brought us through this pandemic are relaxed as of today. Effective immediately. (laughs) Give yourselves a round of applause. So all the state-mandated restrictions are lifted on commercial, social settings, sports and recreation, construction, manufacturing, retail, buildings, All across the board, we can get back to living and businesses can open because the state mandates are gone. Social gathering restrictions, the capacity restrictions, the health screenings, the cleaning and disinfecting protocols. I'm not giving up my hand sanitizer just yet, by the way. Federal restrictions in K-12 schools and other venues controlled by the federal government do remain in effect. But that was Governor Cuomo crowing about the achievement today in New York State. The governor reported the total vaccination rate in New York State has reached 70 percent. New York City is at 68 percent vaccinated. California Governor Gavin Newsom celebrated his state's ending of restrictions, which joined New York in doing that today, by hosting a drawing in which 10 people won $1.5 million each simply for being vaccinated. With the arrival of the vaccine in mid-December, COVID-19 deaths per day in the United States have plummeted to an average of about 340 from a high of over 3,400 in mid-January. Cases are running at about 14,000 a day on average, down from a quarter million per day over the winter. The real death tolls in the U.S. and around the globe are thought to be significantly higher with many cases overlooked or possibly concealed by some countries. Meanwhile, in New York City, tenants and landlords had an opportunity today to weigh in on a potential rent increase. A virtual public hearing is being held as the city's Rent Guidelines Board considers a range of potential increases on the city's 1 million rent-stabilized apartments. This year's range is 0 to 2% increase on one-year lease renewals and a 1 to 3% increase on two-year leases. The board will set a final percentage for each lease next month, which will then apply to any lease signed after October 1st. Last year, rents were kept flat 
for one-year leases and included a 1% increase during the second year of two-year leases. A second hearing is set for Thursday, and the board plans to hold the final vote next Wednesday. Polling shows the current front-runner in the race to replace outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Adams recently came out in favor of a rent increase to help what he says are struggling small landlords. In second place in the poll is former Sanitation Commissioner Catherine Garcia. Using ranked choice voting in New York City for the first time to alleviate the need for a runoff in case no candidate gets 50% of the vote, voters will rank their preferences and a computer will divvy up the results. The poll, taking the new system into account, gave the third place spot to civil rights lawyer Maya Wiley. Wiley, who is endorsed by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is considered the most progressive candidate. She spoke with WBAI earlier today in a wide-ranging interview that jumped off with the candidate's view of police tactics during protests last year after the murder of George Floyd. What I saw was unconstitutional. It was not just bad policing. It was dangerous to the rule of law because it ignored the rule of law and, frankly, is exactly the racial justice crisis we've had in this country before George Floyd that we had made some progress on in New York City, but obviously not enough, had a lot more we had to do. And it just called our attention to the fact that actually we were going backwards. And that was a dangerous thing when you have a police commissioner seeing videos of what is clearly unconstitutional behavior, hurting people, and then praising police officers for doing it. That is simply outrageous and cannot be accepted. And I will change that. Well, let's talk about accountability just for a moment. It's very rare what happened with the officers involved in the George Floyd case. There is no accountability or very little accountability in New York. The big part of it is not allowing it to just act as if it's a city unto itself that does what it wants because it is a public agency that is supposed to protect and serve every single New Yorker and that means being accountable to civilians. But I'm also going to restructure civilian oversight. So I'm going to have a civilian police commissioner who will be expert and understand how to manage change and be on mission. But I'm also putting a civilian commission on top of the police department to set both the priorities of policing Police are not always deploying their resources and focused on the right priorities, like doing enough to keep illegal guns out of our city and off our streets and deploying resources smartly to those priorities, but also in a way that is lawful, constitutional and builds relationships, not creates problems. We will not be policing poverty like in the Eric Garner case. We have a lot of gray area and it's not fair to the police officers or to the public. When we're clear on the rules, it's easier to have accountability, but it can't be an accountability decided within the department because that's not neutral. It has to be neutral and fair, but that's having a civilian commission on top of it that is actually the final decision maker in discipline and also make sure that it is the holders of making sure that there's transparency to the public about what's happening with the priorities, about what's happening with policing and about what's happening with discipline. You mentioned in the course of the answer, policing poverty in the Eric Garner case, and is gentrification inevitable in New York? And the reason I'm saying that is that right now the Rent Guidelines Board is meeting. One of your opponents, Eric Adams, has said that maybe there should be because of small landlords. Eric Adams is just flat out wrong. I proposed an eviction moratorium plan back in December because this was a crisis about to become a catastrophe that said we can keep people from being evicted in several ways, including protecting small homeowners and small landlords by taking the relief dollars we're getting 
from Congress and using them to create a subsidy for those small homeowners. We don't want to put people out of their home. I know a home health aide struggling with this. We forget that a lot of folks are low income who are also homeowners. But using that to give them resources and subsidies so they can pay their mortgages in exchange for not evicting their tenants. Increase free legal assistance for evictions up to 400% of poverty because it's been extremely effective. If you have a lawyer in housing court, 84% of those cases did not go to eviction. But that's just a stopgap measure, right? What we have to do is make sure we are subsidizing the rent for all these New Yorkers who are paying more than 30%. So my plan, unlike any other candidate in this race, calls for a city subsidy that says if you're at 50% of area meeting income or less, that means if you're a family of three, your household income is $54,000 or less, we will subsidize that rent so that you aren't paying more than 30% of your household income. It also makes sure people can eat. The Rent Guidelines Board is one that has to, in this crisis, adhere to what we have to deal with in this crisis, and that means keeping people in their homes. Let's jump to public housing. NYCHA needs $40 billion investment. Where, in your opinion, should the money come from? We have to keep public housing public. It's our largest stock of affordable housing, and we have to make it humane housing because right now it's a human rights violation. So I put in my plan New Deal New York, which not only will create 100,000 new jobs for New Yorkers and do local targeted hiring, so we're hiring folks from communities ravaged by COVID with high unemployment rates. $2 billion of that $10 billion plan is explicitly earmarked for NYCHA for renovation and rehabilitation and for giving residents a voice in what the priorities for that are. But also I'm very proud to have been endorsed by Congresswoman Nydia Velasquez, who has been a champion of this in Congress. The Biden administration and its infrastructure bill put money for public housing to renovate and rehabilitate it. It wasn't enough money and Senator Schumer met with him and said, we need you to put another 40 billion in. But I'm not going to wait. I've already got the skin in the game with the $2 billion plan. We will do more, but we will do it also in partnership with our leaders in Washington. The idea of infill, of building, using that property, and we've seen under the de Blasio administration use of tax breaks to get affordable housing, Soho development, Herald Square, Penn Station, uh, these huge development projects that somehow we can develop our way out of the housing problem. We need state law change in Albany. The state laws that subsidize this need to be changed. We just have to have the courage to confront the developers, the courage to confront the bureaucracy, and that's what called me into this race because I got that courage. Eastside Resiliency Mm -hmm. Project, your position on that? My way of leading is to lead with community, to partner with them and talk them through, but in a way that is principled, that lays out the outcomes that we are expecting, what will best get us to those outcomes, and that's the way I will lead as mayor on all of these kinds of questions. Because this is a city where we have to come together and rise together. Would you fight the lawsuits, though, (laughs) that are being brought against that project? Look, I'm going to focus, first of all, winning on June 22nd and getting to the place where we can have real conversations as government and as a mayor with the people of the city of New York and with all our communities on all these range of issues that are specific to specific communities. And we're going to take it community by community.
Civil rights lawyer Maya Wiley is a candidate for mayor of New York. WBAI is in contact with candidate Eric Adams, who has also promised us an interview. The Eastside Resiliency Project is a controversial flood control plan that would close a popular park on the Lower East Side. And, of course, all politics in New York are local. In more local news, a New York judge on Tuesday approved disgraced movie mogul Harvey Weinstein's extradition to California, where he faces additional sexual assault charges. The decision from Judge Kenneth Case ends a legal fight prolonged by the COVID-19 pandemic. The defense's concerns about Weinstein's failing health and a squabble over paperwork. Los Angeles authorities plan to collect Weinstein, who's 69, from the Wend Correctional Facility in Alden, New York. Weinstein faces 11 sexual assault counts in California involving five women stemming from alleged assaults in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills from 2004 to 2013. Weinstein is appealing the verdict in New York that he raped an aspiring actress in 2013 in a Manhattan hotel room and a film production assistant in 2006 at his Manhattan apartment. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In Latin American news, the United Nations Human Rights Chief has urged Peruvians to remain calm as the official results of a deeply polarized presidential runoff have yet to be released more than a week after the vote was held across the Andean nation. In a statement on Monday, Michelle Bachelet said she was concerned that what should be a celebration of democracy is becoming a source of division, which is in turn widening the fracture in Peruvian society with negative human rights implications. Millions of Peruvians headed to the polls on June 6th, choosing between leftist teachers union leader Pedro Castillo and right-wing Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of jailed ex-president Alberto Fujimori. Castillo has called for the count to be wrapped up quickly, but Peru's national elections jury is reviewing challenges to tens of thousands of votes cast at 165 polling stations countrywide 151 of them disputed by fujimori and 14 by castillo that process could take several days meanwhile castillo voters are arriving in the capital from rural areas to protest the delay and celebrate their candidates impending victory peruvian journalist francesca manuele tells wbai the delay is not unexpected but comes at a bad time as fujimori is spreading rumors of voter fraud similar to those of former u.s president donald trump Tensions continues in Peru. It's nine days after the elections, and it's because the electoral authorities haven't announced yet who the future president of Peru will be. Everything indicates that Castillo is the winner. He has an advantage of around 50,000 votes against his opponent, Keiko Fujimori, and all the votes have been counted. But Keiko Fujimori has alleged electoral fraud, sending tally sheets to be reviewed by the electoral authorities. So this is what is happening now, and this is the reason of why the announcement of Castillo is being held up. These allegations of fraud by Keiko Fujimori are baseless. International observers like the OAS, the Organization of American States and the European Union, have said that these elections were clean, and it is clear that Keiko Fujimori is using a strategy similar to what Donald Trump did here in the U.S., creating a false narrative of electoral fraud, creating potential scenarios of attacking democracy. She will succeed in destabilizing Castillo's future government so a parliamentary coup could take place after he assumes powers. What's a parliamentary uh, coup? It's an impeachment. This has happened in Peru recently. 
two times in the past five years. The former president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, was impeached. And then recently in November, another president, Martin Vizcarra, was impeached as well. This is a potential scenario in the next presidency of Castillo. Upon understanding this complex scenario, leaders around the world, like the president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez, have welcomed Castillo as the new president of Peru, despite Peru's electoral bodies having announced his victory yet. There is a disconnection between reality and what the media in Peru is presenting to Peruvians. The United States' role in all this? United hasn't said anything yet. There are different factions from the right wing in Peru that are planning different ways to attack. So far, the Organization of American States which is very close to U.S. foreign policy in the region, has said that these elections have been clean. If another country had this chaotic scenario where, like, after nine days of the elections, the president hasn't been announced, the Organization of American State hasn't been vocal enough to help Castillos to be announced as the president of Peru, as he should be, because Peruvians voted to have him as his president. What about the military in Peru? The military doesn't support a coup, and they have published a statement saying that they won't support a coup. What's taking place now is that thousands of hundreds of people from the interior of the country are going to Lima uh, to have demonstrations and protests to defend the vote to defend Castillo and that he is elected president of Peru. Starting today until Saturday, there will be several demonstrations in Lima and in different parts of the country, most of them organized by working class people, by campesinos, by supporters of Castillo that want their vote to be respected. Peruvian journalist Francesca Emanuele. In related news, Keiko Fujimori says she'll not be sent back to prison after a judge reviews her freedom in a money laundering case, insisting the fraud was committed by her rivals. And fresh from supportive summits with G7 and NATO allies, President Joe Biden says he's ready to take on Russia's Vladimir Putin in far more confrontational talks, a climatic finish to the most important week of meetings in his young presidency. Biden meets Russian leader Vladimir Putin tomorrow in Geneva in a half day of discussions between the two leaders and aides behind closed doors. Biden plans to raise issues ranging from cyber attacks to Putin's treatment of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Biden warned that if Russia continues cyber attacks and other aggressive acts towards the U.S., quote, we will respond in kind. In a communique issued by governments attending the meeting of the North Atlantic Council in Brussels yesterday, NATO warned it's prepared to treat cyber attacks in the same way as an armed attack against any of its allies and issue a military response against the perpetrators. The military alliance revealed a decision will be taken to invoke Article 5 on a case-by-case basis following a cyber attack. Under Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, first signed in 1949, when any NATO ally is a victim of an armed attack, it will be considered an attack on all alliance members who will theoretically take any actions necessary to defend that ally. Professor of International Law at Ohio State University, John Quigley, has more. Article 5 says that an attack on one state is an attack on all. So it's a mutual defense type of treaty. And that would come into play if there is an attack that qualifies under the U.N. Charter as one 
giving justification for use of force in defense. That traditionally is limited to an armed attack. I mean, that's what the UN Charter was drafted to prevent. The Atlantic Council is apparently saying now that we will consider cyber attack to be tantamount to an armed attack. They're expanding the concept of armed attack, which is a bit of a risk because when you expand the notion of armed attack, you expand the justifications for use of force. We had a similar problem going back to the the Bush administration in 2002 when it expanded on the concept of armed attack to say that attacks in anticipation of being attacked would qualify as self-defense. And that led to the use of the concept to start the war against Iraq in 2003. Any expansion uh, of the concept of armed attack opens the route to use of military force under circumstances kind of proclaimed by NATO to qualify. The first thing that strikes me is, from what I understand about computers, is the Internet was never designed to be secure. It's being overused. The risk is that President Biden would go on television and say, we think Russia was behind it. Uh, So we're invoking Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, and we're going to take military action against Russia. Gulf of Tonkin all over again, only this time over the Internet. Yeah. John Quigley is a professor of international law at Ohio State University. In related news, Ukraine's president says he's concerned that this week's U.S.-Russia summit will not produce concrete results and will leave his country in an uncertain position. President Volodymyr Zelensky says he was disappointed he's not able to have a meeting with President Joe Biden before Wednesday's summit in Geneva. Some in Ukraine are eager for strong support from the West as it faces Russia-backed separatist rebels who've taken control of a large section of the country's east. But political science professor Nikolai Petro of the University of Rhode Island says the situation is complex with divided country and unpopular government. Professor Petro joins WBAI from Odessa in Ukraine. As a result of the violent change of government in 2014, February 2014, political opinions here in Ukraine have gotten more polarized. Also as a result of separatist movements that have been supported by Russia. There's internal conflict in Ukraine. Then there's a conflict in Russia and Ukraine. There's a conflict between the United States and Russia over different interpretations of what's going on in Ukraine. So it's all very complicated. Does Ukraine want to become part of NATO or is it going to divide sort of like uh, East versus West and become two separate countries? Probably not. But if you listen to Joe Biden's rhetoric, it becomes unclear. Biden today talked about the importance of America's commitment to the self-defense Article 5 in NATO. Ukraine wants to be part of NATO. As a matter of fact, they changed their constitution to make it mandatory for all future governments to aspire to join NATO. 
What happens if a country, which is already de facto at war with another country, joins NATO? Does NATO automatically assume the obligations of attacking the enemy of this new member? It's a situation NATO has never faced before, and it's not clear what would happen in that case. It seems that oil and natural gas and Ukraine's position as a transit for oil pipelines between Russia and Germany and is behind a lot of this for the West. Okay. I don't think so, because the gas pipeline that the United States is opposing, Germany wants. There's no single United Western position on this. Right now, it seems as if the United States is backing down and allowing Germany to have the pipeline to Russian gas. The problems with this pipeline, Ukraine, on the one hand, is refusing to purchase Russian gas because it wants independence. But it also wants to keep the pipeline so that it can be paid transit, passing the gas through the pipeline to Western Europe. Is the existence of this pipeline, the relations between the U.S. and Ukraine hinge upon Biden family corrupt dealings? We don't know. There's obviously a lot in this relationship that we just don't know at this point. Can this uh, corruption situation with Ukraine ever be worked out? Corruption is the result of a lack of economic development and people making bad choices, corrupt choices that they'd rather not make because they can't make money legally. If that situation were to change, there would be less corruption. Nikolai Petro is professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island. He's currently in Odessa, Ukraine. And finally, Attorney General Merrick Garland today announced a new strategy to combat domestic terrorism after the Biden administration completed a sweeping assessment of the threat posed by domestic violent extremism following the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Garland tied the new policy directly to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Justice Department, he says, has an enormous task ahead. I'm pleased to announce that the administration is today releasing the first national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. The national strategy is designed to coordinate and provide a principled path for the federal government's efforts to counter the heightened domestic terrorism threat using all available tools. It is the culmination of an effort undertaken at the president's direction by federal agencies all across the government. At the Justice Department, the Deputy Attorney General and I have already begun implementing a range of measures. Our current effort comes on the heels of the January 6th assault on our nation's capital. We have now, as we have then, an enormous task ahead to move forward as a country, to punish the perpetrators, to do everything possible to prevent similar attacks, and to do so in a manner that affirms the values on which our justice system is founded and upon which our democracy depends. Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, he added the Justice Department is looking at whether new legislative authorities are appropriate to balance safety and the protection of civil liberties. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. 